Please take your Bibles and turn to 2 Samuel 12. We've been a little sporadic on Sunday evenings of late uh, with our prayer and fasting several weeks ago, and then um, last week, uh, my being out of town. We pick up, however, in 2 Samuel 12. Uh, remember, we're speaking of David and the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba, his adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then his murder of Uriah the Hittite. And over these past several weeks, we've considered an important and inconvenient truth. Sin has consequences, right? We've considered that truth, that sin has consequences. We've mentioned that we don't have the ability to control these consequences, and not only in our own lives, but also in the, li- the lives of others who are affected by our sins. Our sin goes farther than we want it to go. It keeps us longer than we wanted to stay, and it gives us less than we promised. We can choose our sin. We cannot choose our consequences, and our sin will affect others. But today, cause and effect becomes a little bit less clear. David's sin of murdering Uriah affected the lives of the men who died, of course, to cover it, right? It affected Bathsheba, who lost her husband. It affected Uriah, who was killed. But David did not directly, his sin, let me rephrase that. David's child is about to die. And this child is sick by God's word because of David's sin. However, David's sin did not directly make this child sick. Understand what I'm saying? David's sin did not place the illness in this child's body. Whatever it was that was bringing this child's death it would seem that the cause and effect of this action is less clear, right? What, why is this child going to die? It would seem to us as though David sinned and then the child is being punished for his sin, wouldn't it? That David sinned and the child will be punished. That David sinned and then God, in response to David's sin, chose not to kill David, but rather chose to kill the child. And this is troubling. This is not just choices and consequences. And and if we think of it in a certain perspective, it seems to breach the very fabric of justice. Now, we know that God is just, which makes this passage very intimidating and troubling to us because somehow there is justice here. And today we're going to seek to understand it. And as we do so, let me just say that from a human perspective, our conclusions may not be fully satisfying. And what I mean by this is that regardless of how we, regardless of whether or not we understand why this child dies properly, which I hope you will by the end of the night, and understand how God is just in doing this, and how this is not the child being punished for his father's sin. I hope that we understand all of that, but regardless of whether or not we understand it, this death is going to be terrible for us to contemplate. The death of an innocent child is a terrible thing. The fact that this child would die as a result of his father's sin is is difficult to swallow. And why 
while it may not make us happy, my desire is that we would at least understand that God is just. And then understand how these principles can touch our own lives. So we're going to dig into the text. We're going to begin in verse 13 and 14 for context. This is where we see the final announcement of the consequence for David's sin. The text tells us, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. Howbeit because this deed, by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born unto thee shall surely die. God tells David that he will not die, that God has put away his sin. Now this is important because obviously this was a part of the Davidic covenant, right? The Davidic covenant said that God would not put away David the way he put away Saul. And so we understand that God is constrained by his own promises here not to reject David uh, as king. He can't do that. He, he must not do that. He made this promise. And this doesn't back God into a corner because God made that promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, knowing what David would do in 2 Samuel 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, right? So this is not God being thrown off. This is not God being backed into a corner. This is not God making a promise and then realizing later that that was a bad promise to make. You know, sometimes you do that, right? I know as a parent, I do that sometimes. Sometimes I'll, I'll make a promise to my children. I'll say yes to something or no to something. Yes, we can do that. No, to, no, you can't do that. And then I'll realize that I backed myself into a corner of constraint that I really don't want to be in. And now I have to follow through and live within the constraints that I have placed upon my children that maybe I wouldn't have placed upon them if I had been thinking ahead a little bit uh, as, as, as far as it goes. Uh, so David will not die. And he gives the specific reason why the child must die here. He says, because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Because David's deed has given the enemies of the Lord surrounding the nation of Israel, all of those nations that David had conquered, all of those nations that had fallen before him, that David had conquered in the name of the kingdom that God had promised to Israel, the land of Canaan, all of those nations that that uh, had opposed David and had fallen, and David said, this is because the Lord is with me. This is because I am a servant of the living God. Now they have occasion to blaspheme God. Now they have occasion to say, look, you claim to represent God, and look, you're no better than anybody else. And this is one of those unfortunate consequences. We, we uh, aren't going to focus on that in our time, in our conclusion this evening. But this is one of those things, when you take on the name of God, when you take on that mantle of Christian, now Christian means a lot of different things today, right? So it's, it's a tough thing to just use that word Christian, but let me use it anyway. When you take on that mantle of Christian, or however you want to put, put it, Bible-believing Christian, uh, born-again Christian, Holy Spirit and dwell, born-again Bible-believing Christian, however, however specific we have to get before we weed out all of the crazies, right? Um, it, whatever, however you represent yourself, when you represent yourself in that manner, you also represent God. That means if you claim to be a Holy Spirit and dwell Bible-believing, born-again Christian, and you end up getting caught lying, cheating, stealing, the people that know you're a born-again Bible-believing Christian will see that and say, hmm, maybe they're not all that much different from us. Maybe this God thing really doesn't have a whole lot of credibility after all. Because your testimony has been marred. God says the testimony 
my testimony has been marred, and there must be justice. The people that are looking at this circumstance must see a God that punishes sin, must see a God that deals with sin, because God's testimony is at stake here. If God were not to do anything to deal with this sin, then the people would say, not only is David not a good representative of his God, but his God is not actually a representative of the law. That this law that they claim to follow, that is the law of God, is not even followed by the very God that they claim made it. Something must be done, and God says, what must be done is this child must die. And while God had shown great mercy to David, his justice demanded that there be an open and a public dealing with this sin. Something that showed the enemies of God that God dealt with sin. It would not repair the damage done, but the death of the child would take away further occasion to blaspheme God. Verses 15 and 16 says, And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night upon the earth. Nathan leaves the child, becomes very sick. David immediately begins imploring the Lord for mercy upon the child through prayer and fasting. Now we've spoken before of the fact that while God never changes his character, and we'll talk more about this, he does change his actions on the basis of man's, man's requests. That God will change his actions on the basis of man's response to him. So it's not God changing his character, but it is God changing his actions. When a man is in sin, he is positioned for judgment, and God's holy character has determined it upon him. But when a man repents... God is fully just within the bounds of his character to change his course on his determined judgment and to show mercy because both mercy and justice are part of God's unchanging character. This is a change of action. This is not a change of character. God is responding in consistency with his character. He responds to faith. He responds to humility. We know that from the word of God. We know Hebrews 11.6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. We know from, the, from James that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so humility and faith produce mercy and grace. We know that. That's a part of God's character. That's not God changing his character in order to bring that to pass. That's God being consistent with his character in order to bring that to pass. So it's not a problem that David here sought to change the course of God's judgment. We see this all the time in the scriptures, don't we? We see this with Balaam. We see this with Jonah. We see many, many times in the scriptures where people change their mind, change their action, and God changes his judgment. So David understands this. And he understands that though the child has been condemned to die, there is always a chance that the heart of God can be moved to repentance through the humble entreaty of a man. So David pursues this entreaty with prayer and fasting. I preached a couple of weeks ago uh, about fasting. And of course, if you weren't here for that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to it or to watch it on YouTube. I think everyone here was here for that message um, 
but I preached that one, and you can go back and reference that if you'd like to learn more about fasting. Uh, to further understand David's focus and intensity, however, we continue in verse 17 where we read, And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, neither did he eat bread with them. So he's laying on the dirt. He is laying on the ground. He is prostrate before God. And the elders of his house, those that knew him best, those that were his most trusted confidants, perhaps even Ahithophel, who we've talked about a little bit already. Maybe Ahithophel was one of these that came and tried to get David, rise up and eat. This is not, this is not something that you need to be doing. Uh, you're going to, you, you don't know how long this child's going to be sick. What are you just going to not eat until he gets better? It's going to be a long, it could be a really long time, David. Just, you just rise up, eat. Let's eat some bread. I'm trying to encourage him. But we see that this was not just a token fast. This was not just David uh, trying trying something. We'll see if it works. David is in fervent and intense fasting and prayer. David is begging God with all of his might that he would not take this child. Even his most trusted servants and advisors were not able to get him up off the ground. They, they did not listen to him. I mean, he did not listen to them. He would not eat, but only spend time in prayer and fasting to God. Verse 18, and it came to pass on the seventh day that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken unto our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? So seven days after the child gets sick, he dies. The child is sick for seven days. Seven days, God makes the announcement, your child will die for your sin. Seven days later, the child is dead. So it's been seven days that David has not eaten any food. He's been lying on the floor, on the dirt for seven days. He probably slept there, woke up, prayed, just lay there. The servants were terrified to tell David that the child had died. If David was this put out while the child was still alive by this child's illness, what is going to happen when he finds out the child is dead? Is he going to do self-harm? What's going to happen here? Verse 19, but when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore, David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. So the debate is raging among David's servants. And for whatever reason, they debated within earshot of David. I don't know why that, they would think that's effective when they're trying to actually decide whether or not to tell him. You should probably do that. Not where he could hear you, but he hears them. And he says, is the child dead? They say, yes, indeed, the child is dead. And then something happens that the servants did not expect. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself, changed his apparel, came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. Once David learns the child is dead, he gets up, he washes himself, he anoints himself with the perfumes and spices that uh, the wealthy would typically anoint themselves with to smell better. And uh, he, would, he changed his clothes, he entered into the temple, and the first thing he did is worship God. Obviously, he could not have worshipped in the temple in his unwashed and unclean state. He was doing that in another locale, but he went into the temple having cleaned himself, having washed himself, and he worshipped God. And then after that, he got up from his worshiping. He went to his house and he asked for food and he ate. So when he found out the child was dead, he ceased his fasting and he resumed his life. 
The servants were confused. Verse 21, Then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was yet alive. While it was alive, excuse me. But when the child was dead, thou didst arise and eat bread. One would expect that David's sorrow would get worse when the child dies than when the child was just sick. But David seems to have quite the opposite response. Once the baby was dead, he moved on with life. Fast over, moving on. Why would this be? Well, David explains himself in verses 22 and 23. He said, while the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David understands that God's heart can be affected by the actions of men. And so while there was a possibility of God graciously allowing this child to live, David sought with all of his heart this outcome. It was a possibility. David wasn't just doing this because he wanted people, other people, to think he was sad. He was doing this. He wasn't doing this for people. He wasn't even doing this for himself. This wasn't about his personal mourning. This wasn't about having a a, a good show for others. This was about the heart of God, touching the heart of God, changing the heart of God. There's the possibility that God will repent of his anger and allow this child to live. And as long as there is any possibility of that, I am going to seek it. But now the child is dead. What more can I do, he says. Can fasting bring the child back? No. Fasting is for mourning for a request, right? It's to to touch the heart of God. The deed is done. The child is dead. Fasting is no longer necessary. It's no longer effective. It can no longer do anything. And then David says this very important statement. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David makes himself quite clear here. He is confident that the child went where he would eventually follow. Old Testament saints understood well the reality of heaven and hell. They understood well the place of rest and the place of torment. They understood that the unrighteous would go to eternal judgment. They understood that the righteous would go to a place of eternal life. David was a man of strong spiritual understanding. He is a man who had accepted the revelation of God that had been given to him. He was a just man. Now, he did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The Old Testament saints did not have the indwelling Holy Spirit. He was not born again, as that's a concept for the New Testament. But he was, if we can use the word, saved. He was a just man before God. He had accepted the revelation of God that had been given about sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, about the Messiah that was to come. He had accepted it. And so he was a man covered by the blood of Christ. He was a just man. And David knew that he was going to heaven. And he says, when I get there, my son will be waiting for me. I will go to him. He can't come back to me. My son is dead. I'll see him again. I'll go to him. Now, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But this forms a large portion of the basis by which we believe that young children go to heaven when they die. This verse is one of the primary verses by which we believe that, that young children go to heaven when they die. And we'll talk more about that in our application. 
The narrative ends in verses 24 and 25. The scriptures tell us, And David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and went in under her, and lay with her, and she bare a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent by the hand of Nathan the prophet, and he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. I love this. David comforts his wife, who is no doubt deeply distraught. Remember the consequences of sin, right? This is the final consequence that we see here. Bathsheba has now lost her husband and her son in probably the span of a year. And by all accounts, this was her first child. We, we don't know of another child. We don't read of another child before this. And this child is dead. She was very troubled. David comforts her. He lay with her. They have another child together. And this child they named Solomon. We could and will at some point preach a message on God's grace and that Solomon becomes the next king in Israel. And notice this. The text tells us that God loves Solomon so much that God specifically sent the prophet Nathan to this child and Nathan gave him a nickname. A name that was God's name for Solomon. The name Jedediah. Which means beloved of the Lord. Beloved of Jehovah. And what a great grace that must have been to David and to Bathsheba. That they had a child who was lost as a consequence of David's sin with Bathsheba, the sin of adultery. Then they have another child together, and God immediately sends the prophet and says, I love this child. Don't think that this child is rejected of me. Don't think that this child has been cast off. I love this child so much, so I'm giving him my own name. You call him Solomon, that's fine. I'm calling him Jedediah. Now, in verses 26 to 31, we pick back up with the battle between Israel and Ammon. And we read this, beginning in verse 26. And Joab fought against Rabbah, that would be the capital of Ammon, of the children of Ammon, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah, and I have taken the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city, and it be called after my name. And David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took their king's crown from off his head, and the weight thereof was a talent of gold and the precious stones, and it was set on David's head. And he brought forth the spoil of the city in great abundance. And he brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws and under harrows of irons and under axes of irons and made them pass through the brickland. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. We read of the final events surrounding the destruction of the city of Rabbah, which has taken two seasons. Remember, uh, Ammon disgraced David's ambassadors when David sent to Ammon to bless the king. And this started a battle. Ammon then enlisted Syria to help him. And they fight together against David. David's forces destroy both of them. The Ammonites flee back to their capital. And then the winter comes, so they stop. That's when David 
Um, It's in that next season that David has the sin with Bathsheba. They're still fighting this campaign uh, against Ammon and against Rabbah, trying to take the besieged city. That's when Uriah the Hittite dies. And we get the final bit of the account here. Joab fights against the city and subdues the portion that he calls the water city. From history, we know that Rabbah, as a capital, was on a river. And it was the River Jabbok. And as a part of that, there probably would have been a a duel set up to the city. There would have been an outer city on the river. And then there probably would have been a more fortified part of the city wherein was the castle. We see this quite regularly. As a matter of fact, Jerusalem was built this way too. There was a lower city and an upper city. And you have to get through the lower city to get to the upper city. So there's an extra layer of defense there that they have to take the lower city and then they have to get through the lower city and then they have to take the upper city and that's kind of the idea here so Joab had taken the lower city and he's ready to siege and take the upper city he's taken the water city and then they're ready to take the final fortification there and so effectively the victory is secured we don't know how long they had been sieging but Joab says the victory is already in hand we just need to take this last bit of the city take the king And so he calls for David to come and to finish the battle. This way David can claim the victory for himself. He says, lest I take the city and it's called, it was called my battle, my victory. You come, you take the city and it's your victory. And this would have been very common for the kings of the day to come at the end and to claim the victory. Um, They let their people fight the battles. They claim, they come at the end. They fight in the last battle or token fight or whatever it is, claim the victory for themselves. So David does so. They place the crown on his head. They spoil the city. And remember, this was all about revenging the shame, right, of David's ambassadors that scorned David and his kingdom. That's very important to what we read next. This was a battle of vengeance for the shame that it was literally they spat in David's face and David is coming after them to make that right. So David punishes them heavily. The scriptures tell us he sawed them in pieces and burned their bodies. The scriptures tell us he was not merciful to the city that had had, uh, insulted him and his kingdom. They went through all the cities of Ammon doing the same thing to all of them. Look, Look what it says there. Putting them under saws, under harrows of irons, under axes of iron, chopping them in half, cutting them in half, burning their bodies. No mercy here. And then he and the people returned to Jerusalem after having decimated the Ammonites. And this ends the campaign of David against his enemies. And ends our exposition for this evening. As well as chapter 12. Now for our application today, as you might expect, we're going to return to the account of David and his son for further inspection. I trust the Holy Spirit has already taken some of the principles of God's word to instruct you, but there's much yet that is unsaid that needs to be mentioned in regard to this event and much that we need to learn. And the first application point this evening that we need to understand, number one, children are not punished for their parents' sins, but they are often hurt by their parents' sins. We need to make a distinction here. It's a distinction that I hope you accept because... It's important. This child 
the child of David and Bathsheba, was not punished for David's sin. The child was not being punished for the sin of his father. He did not get sick to pay for David's sinful actions, nor did he get sick as a means of punishing David for his sin. David's sin was forgiven, right? It was put away. The child's illness had nothing to do with punishing David's sin or punishing David himself. The child's illness was about vindicating God's holiness. This was about removing the blasphemy of God from the nations. This was about removing that which was an evident token of, of, of wickedness, an evident token of failure, an evident token of the representative, the theocratic representative of God, disobeying God's command. This was intended to show justice, not to punish David or to punish the child for David's sin. Now you can argue that I'm playing a word game with you. It's the same thing, Pastor. The results are the same, so it's all the same. The child was punished. The child died for David's sin, so we can say that the child was punished for David's sin. We can say that God was punishing David here. Uh, you, can, you can say that God was just and he was just removing this, this uh, child because of the blasphemy, which is what the Bible says too, by the way. But at the end of the day, it's still the child dying for David's sin. Yes, it is. It is the child dying for David's sin, but that's not necessarily the same as the child being punished for David's sin. Can you see the distinction? Sometimes the things that we do as parents hurt our children. That's not because God is punishing our children for our sin. That's not because God is punishing us by allowing our children to be hurt. That's because we've sinned. And our children sometimes have to bear the consequences because God has placed us over our children. The sins of our nation touch us, don't they? The sins of a church touch those in the church. The sins of a parent touch children. This is the way it goes. The child had to die because David had defamed the name of the Lord among the nations and that defamation had to be removed. It's not the child's fault that David had placed him there, but it's not God's fault that David had placed him there either. The defamation had to be removed. This is justice. This is God. If God could have found a way to mercifully not allow this child to die, you think God would have found it? But it wasn't there because this child was the peace. That's why David's entreaty. This is why when the Ninevites placed ashes on their heads and tore their clothing and begged God for mercy, when the Ninevites were, it's the capital of Assyria, which was a nation that had killed Thousands upon thousands of innocent people. This is why God could show them mercy, but not this one child. Because there was a way that God could show mercy to these people while still fulfilling his justice. There was no way God could allow this child to live while still fulfilling justice. This child had to die. Pastor, you're just playing games. Word games. Semantics. In Ezekiel 18, I'm going to read to you 20 verses. It's going to be a bigger chunk of scripture. We read something definitive about God and his character as it relates to sins of fathers and children. In Ezekiel 18, verses 1 through 20, 
And I, I, I mentioned it's going to be a long passage. We read this. The word of the Lord came unto me, that would be Ezekiel, again saying, What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? So God is speaking to Israel there. What mean ye, right? Plural. What mean ye that ye use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge? In other words, the fathers sinned and the children are punished for it. The fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are... Have you ever had something? Maybe if you've got uh, sensitive teeth where you bite into something cold and your teeth hurt. It's like that pain that just shoots through your teeth when you bite into it. That's the idea here. That the, the fathers ate the sour grapes and as they eat the sour grapes, their children's teeth are the ones that hurt instead of their own. Why are we having to suffer the consequences of our parents' sins? As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion any more to use this proverb in Israel. Behold, all souls are mine. As the souls of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. But if a man be just, and do that which is lawful and right, and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to a debtor his pledge, hath spoiled none by violence, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with a garment. He that hath not given, uh, he that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase. He that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, hath walked in my statutes, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just, he shall surely live, saith the Lord God. If he beget a son that is a robber, a shedder of blood, and that doeth the like to any one of these things, and that doeth not any of those duties, but even hath eaten upon the mountains, hath defiled his neighbor's wife, hath oppressed the poor and needy, hath spoiled by violence, hath not restored the pledge, hath lifted up his eyes to the idols, hath committed abomination, hath, for, uh, hath given forth upon usury, hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Now, lo, if he beget a son that seeth his father's sins, which he hath done, and considereth, and doth, doeth not such like, that hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither hath lifted up his eyes to idols of the house of Israel, hath not defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath oppressed any, hath not withholden the pledge, neither hath spoiled by violence, but hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the naked with garment, that hath taken off his hand from the poor, that hath not received usury nor increase, hath executed my judgments, hath walked in my statutes, he shall not die for the iniquity of his father, he shall surely live. As for his father, because he cruelly oppressed, spoiled his brother by violence, and did, not that, which is, uh, did that which is not good among his people, lo, he shall die in his iniquity, yet shall... Yet say ye, why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father, when the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them? He shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now, this is a long passage, but did you follow the point? The scenario is this. A man is a good man. He does that which is right. He won't die. He has a son. He won't bear his iniquity. He, he's, he's just. 
He has a son. That son does wickedness. All these evil things. His father won't die for his sin. He'll die for his sin. That wicked man has a son, and that son looks at his father and says, this man is a wicked man. I'm not going to be like him. And he does that which is right. The son will not die for the father's sin. The father will not be blessed for the son's righteousness. Nor, do you see what, what it's saying here? The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Well, how does that mesh? This is what Ezekiel 18 tells us. Ezekiel 18 tells us God does not recompense the sin of one man upon someone else. God does not place the consequences, the, the punishment, the, the spiritual weight of a man's sin upon his, his future generations. If a man is evil and his son is righteous, the son will not die for the evil of his father. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Every man bears his own iniquity. But that doesn't mean, and this is where we need to make this distinction, that doesn't mean that our sinful decisions don't have an effect upon our children. That doesn't mean that as leaders, our sinful decisions do not affect those who follow us. David and Bathsheba's child did not bear the sin of David. That was David's alone to bear and God removed it from him. The child did not bear the sin of his father. He did not die as a recompense for David's sin. The child was born as a result of a sinful action committed by a king who was God's representative upon the earth. And with every layer of authority and privilege which God gives to us, there is likewise a layer of responsibility. If God had allowed this child to live, it would have compromised God's testimony of holiness among the nations. And so in justice, God's character compelled him to take the life of this child. And parents, leaders, in whatever capacity you are a leader, know this. Your decisions affect others and your sin can affect the lives of others. Your children will not be punished for your poor choices, for your sins. God does not mete out chastening upon your children because of your bad choices. But your children might suffer as a result of your poor choices and sins apart from their own ability to change. Your children might bear the brunt of the suffering for your sins. And we see it every day, don't we? Don't you read it? I don't know how often you read the news. It's, maybe you don't because it's depressing. But if you read the news, you see it. You see it all the time. You see people who make wrong choices and their children are suffering. I see it every week at the jail. I go and I meet with men and women who have children. And they're in jail on drug charges. And when they get out, they're not going to go care for their children. They're going to go buy more drugs. And their children are going from home to home, whether it's foster homes, whether it's uh, relatives, whether it's back to them, whether it's whatever. And their children are suffering because of their sin. That's not God visiting the punishment of their sin and, and their wrong choices on the children. This is just the natural order of things. Your children might suffer as a result of your poor choices and sins. And if you have trouble with this distinction that a child's suffering is not God punishing them, 
but is in fact God allowing them to suffer due to their parents' actions, may I just encourage you then not to try, not to test God on this one. Just don't push the boundaries of this one. Just do what's right so your children don't have to suffer for your poor decision making. There are such things as generational sins. Sinful tendencies which seem to pass down from parents to children. There are consequences that children suffer because of their parents' sins. Parents who are angry or drunkards and, and their children get abused. Parents are poor money managers and their children go hungry. Parents don't go to church and their children grow up as pagans. Those things happen. Our decisions affect our children and may change the very fabric of their lives. As parents, our, de- chil- our, our decisions will very likely change the course of our children's futures. And we don't have to like it. It may sound unjust that God does not shield our children from the fallout of our own sinful choices, but we can't blame God when we do wrong things and our children suffer for it. We can't, we can't place that at God's feet. That's not God's burden to bear, that we're choosing to do wrong. It's not God's burden to bear that David chose to do wrong and now the people around him are looking at God's theocratic representative and see him as an adulterer and a murderer. That's not God's fault. And that this child had to be removed so that the blemish of this blasphemy would be taken away. That's not what God wanted. That's what David chose by his sin. That was the consequence that David incurred by his choices. This child died because of David, not because of God. And that happens. That happens. We can't blame God for being forced to take David's child in order to vindicate his holy nature from those who had blasphemed him because of David's sinful choices. So, Children are not punished for their parents' sins, but they are often affected by their parents' sins. I hope you can understand the distinction. You may not like it. You, you, you may not agree with me. That's fine. But that's the distinction as it plays out in the scriptures. Our second point, however, is much more encouraging. So let's move on to it. It's an extension of this point, uh, not a contradiction or an exception. Point number two, God is just in dealing with the death of the innocent. This child was innocent. This child did not bear the sin of David. This child was not seen as guilty before God. This was an innocent child. God has a soft heart for the innocent. Did you know that? Jesus said, suffer the children to come unto me. Hinder them not. Jesus said, if you offend one of these little ones, it's better that a millstone be placed around your neck and you be cast into the sea. He loves children. He has a heart for the innocent, for the poor, for the needy. God loves them. In Luke 18, 16, Scriptures say, Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. God in his holiness could not allow that child to live. But David acknowledged that though he, the child could not come back to him, he would go to that child. David acknowledged that that child would be in heaven. And from this concept, coupled with the testimony throughout scriptures of God's love and care for the innocent, for the poor and for the needy, 
We build a doctrine. Jesus loves children. He has a heart for them. Jesus also loves the fatherless and the widows, others of great need, orphans and widows, innocent and vulnerable people who have lost their primary means of supporting themselves. James wrote this in James 1.27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. James says this is pure religion. This is the essence of religious zeal. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. This is what religion is intended to do. It's intended to compel us to serve the needy and to separate from sin. That's, that's religion's purpose. People say, I hate religion. I can get behind that statement. But religion has a legitimate biblical purpose. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. And lest we think it's a New Testament thing, if you want to do the study, you can go back into the Old Testament and find out that the Old Testament law protected the fatherless, protected widows, protected women, protected foreigners traveling through a strange land, protected all those who by no fault of their own were in positions of vulnerability. If you were a vulnerable person, the law had protections for you. And the question comes up about those in our society who have died, having not received the gospel of Jesus Christ because they were either too young to understand or mentally incapable of understanding. We often speak of an age of accountability, where a child is finally able to understand the gospel well enough to make a conscious decision, either for or against the gospel. But really, it extends well beyond just an age of accountability. Everyone matures at a different rate. Everyone grows up at a different pace. And everyone understands things at a different time in their lives. We consider that this, it's not, there's no, not really a set age, but, but also we consider those who are mentally handicapped, who uh, likely understand more than we give them credit, but many of whom maybe cannot understand the gospel. What, what about them? What about those who cannot understand the gospel. In each of these cases, here's what we know. God has a heart for the vulnerable and for the innocent. And that God is just. We must always remember that. God is just. God will do what is right. Shall not the Lord of all the earth do right? God asked. Can we trust God to do what's right? Can we trust that when this child died... God made provision for this child for that which is right. Can we trust, because God said he does not punish the innocent for the sins of the guilty, that what God did was right? Can you trust that? Can you trust the character of God and believe that? Can you trust the character of God that children who die, having not had a chance to truly mentally grasp the concepts of the gospel, will not be held, that won't be held against them? Can you trust that God will do what's right by those who mentally are not capable of understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ? Can you trust that the Lord of all the earth will do right? David knew what this meant. And in the case of his son, he knew that his son would be in heaven. He, he, 
expected it. He believed it. And we would believe this of all the innocents who die having no ability to comprehend the gospel. This means, parent, that that miscarried baby will be in heaven. That means that the mentally handicapped will not be turned aside because of their inability to grasp the essentials of the gospel. That means that all of those millions and millions, I believe the count right now is 50 million babies that have been murdered through abortion are around the throne of God today in heaven pleading for justice upon their murderers as the scriptures tell us the martyrs will do at the end of the age but in heaven nonetheless and we can trust this because God is good David exemplifies this confidence and from it I believe we can have that same confidence that God will not turn aside those who are innocent. We could talk about several other things in that regard. You say, well, what about original sin, Pastor? I do have an explanation for that. I'm not going to get into it tonight. If you want that explanation, feel free to ask me. How does original sin get taken care of? The short answer, Jesus Christ's death on the cross, right? He undid what Adam did. So original sin is covered. What is the sin for which anyone will be in hell? It's not for their original sin. We have original sin, but that's not what anyone is burning in hell for. What are they burning in hell for? John 3.18. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Every person that will ever burn in the lake of fire will be there because they have not believed on the name of the Son of God. That is the unforgivable sin. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Unbelief. Unbelief is the sin for which a person ends up in hell. Original sin was covered on the cross. Do we still have it? Yes. Is it covered? Yes. Short answer. Final point. God's actions can be affected by man's actions, but God's character remains forever faithful and unchangeable. The theological term for this is immutability. Unchangeable nature, immutability. God does not change, and indeed he cannot change. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he, that's God, cannot deny himself. He cannot operate outside the bounds of who he is. All throughout the Old Testament, however, we find God repenting, changing his actions in response to man's actions or disposition toward him. We've talked about this briefly already. We see this on an individual level, and we see it on a corporate level in Scripture. Following their agreement to the Mosaic Covenant and their subsequent and immediate, by the way, disobedience, God had determined that he would wipe out the nation of Israel. They said, yes, God, we will follow you. Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days to receive the Ten Commandments. And what do they do? Moses finds them down in the valley, naked, dancing around a golden calf, and praising Jehovah, everything that God told them not to do. Shall have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto me any graven image. He gave them the thou shalt. The mountain burned with fire as his voice came across to them, so much so that they fell on their faces and said, Moses, never again let God speak to us lest we die. You intercede for us. You go talk to God, and then you tell us what God said. Never, ever, ever, ever again let us hear the voice of God. We are terrified. And yet, as soon as Moses goes up on the mount to talk to God, they are down in the valley making a golden calf and dancing around it in pagan worship. 
how quickly we forget, lest we judge them too harshly. You've done it before too, as have I. God determined he would wipe out the nation of Israel and begin again with Moses, as he had once with Abraham. He said this to Moses in Exodus 32.10, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them and I will make of thee a great nation. I'm done with these rebellious folk. They're done. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to make a new nation out of you. To which Moses responds in verse 11. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which, hast brought, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Moses would continue appealing to the long-suffering and the promises of God. And verse 14 tells us, I don't have a slide up, verse 14 tells us, let me turn there briefly. I'm supposed to have a slide, but I don't. And the Lord repented of the evil which he thought to do unto his people. Moses said, please don't do this, God. And God said, okay, I won't. He says, I'm going to do it. Moses says, God, please don't. God says, okay, I won't. And lest we wonder if this is just an exercise, consider what Psalm 106, 23 tells us about this incident. Therefore, he said that he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrath, lest he should destroy them. If Moses had not stood between God and the people and said, God, please don't do this, God would have done it. But there was a man of righteousness who stood in the gap between God and the people, and God was entreated. This is why every week we pray for mercy upon this nation. Because would to God that maybe Legacy Baptist Church might just stand in the gap between God and this nation. Would to God we could be the gap stander. God sought for one in Ezekiel to stand in the gap and he found none. So he destroyed Jerusalem. Would to God that we could stand in the gap between somebody or some group and God's wrath. So what's happening here? If we seek to understand it visually, I hope that's readable. Imagine a box. And that box is the limits of God's perfections. The essence of God's character. That box is the realm within which God is willing to work. Every day we position ourselves with relation to these characteristics. God is good, God is just, God is holy. We position ourselves outside of that or inside of that. We align ourselves with God or we don't align ourselves with God. We're either in the realm of God's character or we're outside the realm of God's character. Either way, we're interacting with God's character. He's dealing with us justly. He's dealing with us in holiness. He's dealing with us in mercy. He's dealing with us in grace. Men operate within the bounds and the aspects of God's character. The Bible says God resists the proud, so if we're proud, we can expect to be resisted. He gives grace to the humble, so if we're humble, we can expect grace. He's merciful to the repentant, so if we repent, we can expect mercy. He is just, so we can expect him to always give us that which is just. And as we continue in this scenario, we consider a man or a nation who have put themselves upon a path of judgment for their sin. 
They are in the path of judgment. In God's holy, righteous character, he must judge them for their sin. And then an intercessor comes along. And the intercessor seeks to touch the heart of God. He appeals to God's other attributes. He doesn't go outside of God's character. He doesn't say, God, change who you are in order to do something different for these people. He simply says, God, remember other attributes. Remember other aspects of your character. Remember that you are merciful. And it is an act of humility by which he goes before God. And God gives grace to the humble. And therefore, his act of faith and humility are sufficient to justly enable God to change the judgment into mercy. Because this is a part of God's character. God never goes outside of himself to act for or against men. But his actions can change based upon our dispositions. If we act, if we align ourselves with an aspect of God's character, God will act thusly. If we align ourselves with God's mercy through humility, we will receive mercy. If we align ourselves with God's resistance through pride, we'll receive resistance. And in this way, God can change his actions without changing himself. He can and is unchangeable, immutable, and faithful. And he can be this while simultaneously allowing within the scope of his character the ability to change. But the important point is that God does not change and will not change. He is not denying who he is or his attributes. David fasted and prayed because he knew that God could be touched with our grief. That God's actions can change through our humility. Abraham touched the heart of God with relation to Sodom. Lot touched the heart of God to be allowed to flee to Zoar. Moses stood in the gap between Israel and God lest they be destroyed. Moses pled for Miriam. And for Aaron in their rebellion and found mercy. Hannah touched the heart of God in pleading for a son. Job interceded for his miserable comforters before God. And on this precedent, David knew that God could change his mind. And so he fasted and prayed for the life of his son. In this case, God's holy character could not allow for that mercy. And so the child yet died. The testimony of this terrible sin had to be undone. This is not because God is not willing to be entreated, but because God could not, in the realm of his character, allow for the child to live. The child living was outside the bounds of God's character, so it could not be done. That's an entreaty that could not be made. It's an intercession that could not stick because it was outside the bounds of God. From any perspective, both human and divine, it is a tragedy that this child had to die. From a human perspective, we may never fully be able to comprehend why it was that there was no other solution. These are the things we cannot know. But what we have spent our time today considering is what we do know. What we know about God's character. What we know about His holiness, His justice, His long-suffering, His mercy, His love, His ability to be entreated his desire to spare the innocent and the reality that a child does not die, does not suffer the consequences, does not bear the sin of his parents. And knowing what we do know about God, knowing those things which we cannot know, 
The rest is simply trust. Trust that what God did here is what was absolutely best within the context of the sin which which David had committed. And when we find ourselves in this place, then we might understand a little bit better the words of Paul as he speaks about Israel and their rebellion and God setting them aside and doing this new thing through the church and yet God once, one day restoring Israel back through tribulation and judgment. Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord? Or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him and it shall not be recompensed to him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. David says, or Paul says, I can't understand it all. I don't understand it. Sovereignty, the will, the justice, the mercy, it's there. But here's what I know. God's ways are unsearchable, but they're right. That of him and through him and to him are all things. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to glorify him. To him be the glory. And you know, that's what David did, wasn't it? David fasted and he prayed and his child died. And what's the first thing he did? He didn't get up after seven days, a seven-day fast and eat. That's what I would have done. That's not what he did. What did he do? He cleaned himself up. He went into the temple and he worshipped. God, to you be the glory. You're right. I'm wrong. I don't understand it all. But you're right. This is right. This is just. I accept it. I'm aligning with you. May we understand and learn to do the same. Let's pray.